Welcome to Evidence-Based, a new Harbinger Psychology podcast. We're your hosts, Cassie and Kendall. On today's episode, we're talking about relational and sexual self-awareness. We're joined by Dr. Alexandra Solomon, author of Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back. Dr. Solomon is on faculty in the Weinberg College of Arts and Sciences and the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University. She's a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University and is on faculty at the Omega Institute. Her first book, Loving Bravely, was featured on the Today Show. She writes articles and chapters for leading academic journals and books in the field of marriage and family. She maintains a psychotherapy practice for individual adults and couples, teaches and trains marriage and family therapy graduate students, and teaches the internationally renowned undergraduate course, Building Loving and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. She's frequently asked to talk about love, sex, and marriage for media outlets like O, The Oprah Magazine, The Atlantic, Vogue, NPR, and Scientific American. She is an international speaker and teacher whose work has been featured on five continents. Thanks so much for meeting with us, Alexandra. We're so excited to talk to you today. Happy to be here with you both. Thanks, Alexandra. It's nice to um, have this conversation. I was really interested reading both of your books and learning about um, relational self-awareness. And I know that's a big part of what your work is based on. Um, So could you explain what relational self-awareness is and what drew you to this kind of work? Sure. Relational self-awareness has really become the through line and everything that I do. So my career has always had um, just a few facets to it. So I am on faculty at Northwestern University. And so I spent, um, you know, 10 years training marriage and family therapy um, graduate students to do couples therapy. And I, and I continue to teach an undergraduate uh, relationship course called Marriage 101. And I'm a practicing clinician. And then I spend lots of time translating research and clinical wisdom into tools for the general public. And so what I was noticing is that there was that that relational self-awareness was the theme, no matter what context I was in. I also should say the context of my own marriage and parenting journey with our two children, no matter what context I was in, it seemed that I was again and again, focusing on understanding the self in the context of relationships. And so that's that's where that's that's the place from which relational self-awareness was was coined or was developed is this idea that our best and bravest work is to cultivate in an ongoing way a curious and compassionate relationship with ourselves and that that becomes the foundation for intimate partnership um and we mostly talk you know both of my books um, loving bravely and taking sexy back are about relational self-awareness in the context of intimate partnership. But certainly when I'm parenting my 17 year old daughter (laughs) and I'm, you know, having a strong reaction to something that she's said or done, or I have a particularly strong opinion about how she ought to be (laughs) living (laughs) her life. I practice relational self-awareness by slowing down and pausing and asking the essential question of what's coming up inside of me right now. What, what is the lens through which I'm experiencing this moment with her? Because especially with an intimate partner or a child of ours, it's really easy to get focused on them, what they're doing Mm -hmm. or not doing and a bit more challenging, but connection building to ask ourselves the question, why am I having that reaction? What is it that their behavior is mirroring to me, showing me, highlighting in me? Um, so that's relational self-awareness. I really like what you said that it's ongoing. And I think that's you know important to note that it's not just one thing and then you're done. You're totally relationally self-aware. It's ongoing practice. Um, so I appreciate that. And um, today we want to talk a, lo- a little more about your book, Taking Sexy Back. So as uh, self-awareness relates to sexuality. So can you talk a little bit about where the self-awareness comes into play with sexuality and talk about um, what self-aware sex is, an idea that you bring up in your book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, you know, I wrote uh, Loving Bravely with New Harbinger and it was born into the world. But even as I was writing that book, I was like, oh boy, I have a lot to say about sex. It is <laughs> not going to fit into my word limit here. <laughs> 
so I sort of knew going, I knew even as that book was being born that I had, I wanted to write a book about sex and um, yeah. And so when new Harpenter was like, what do you want to do next? I was like, okay, well, I think I know what I want to do, which is that all of the themes that we explored in loving bravely impact of family of origin impact of how we are socialized by our culture, impact of early relationship experiences, like how all of that shapes how we do relationships. It's just like the volume is up to a hundred. The intensity is increased when we explore the topic of sex. Sex is so incredibly activating um, for us. And, you know, one of the things that I did in writing, taking sexy back was I, I researched, um, the American sex education system and it's, it's pretty pathetic. It's pretty, you know, yeah. really none of us went into adulthood with the kind of wholehearted, holistic, comprehensive, relationally grounded sex education that we really needed and deserved. And so this taking sexy back has been, you know, has been read by 18 year olds and 58 year olds because, uh, because we all need and deserve that sort of gentle, quiet journey into understanding all the messages we've internalized about sex. And that's what sexual, sexual self-awareness is, is understanding all of the kind of inheritance that we have from our family, from our culture, from pornography, from media, like all of the stuff we've digested and then figuring out what do we want to keep and what do we want to get rid of um, so that we can kind of quiet all the noise and understand more deeply the essence of our own sexual self, our own relationship to touch and pleasure and play and connection. Sure. I think that's really interesting as well, Alexandra, because the foundation to which we all are introduced to sex, you know, whether it be in school or as younger people, um, obviously would play a role into how we translate that as an adult. And what we learned in school is very different um, than what actually comes into play in our lives. And it, it almost feels shameful. But then as you're talking about the media and those other influences, it it really does shape our relationship with it. And so I think that's a really interesting piece. And Transitioning a little bit to your book, um, in your book, you talk about outside in sexuality and inside out sexuality. Can you explain what that means? And then also the differences between the two? Yeah. Outside in sexuality is, um, is basically like, um, going, so I don't want to say this, um, when we outside in sexuality is basically like all of what our culture has given to us. So the idea that girls shouldn't and girls should like that sort of belief that my sexuality is the sum total of everything I've been told inside out sexuality is, is really like taking this journey to understand what is it that I want? How do I, for, for those who are in the world of dating inside out sexuality is what is it that I would be feeling in the context of this relationship that would let me know that beginning to explore erotic connection with this person would feel really good. How would I be feeling on my insides in order to know that it was time to layer that aspect into this connection versus outside in sexuality as well. It's the third date, third date rule. You got to have sex on the third mm -hmm. date. Like sort of this idea that like should, shouldn't, well, you shouldn't have sex until you're exclusive. Well, you shouldn't have sex until you're married. You should have sex by this point. If you don't have sex, they're going to think this, this, and this of you. If you do have sex, they're going to think this, this, this of you. <laughs> sure. So there's this outside in, there's so much chatter um, versus inside out is, is beginning to know what is my body feeling? What are my thoughts? What are my emotions? What am I, um, what is the, the quality of connection between myself and this person that lets me know that um, I'm interested and ready to kind of, to co-create something sexual with this person. And it's not just inside out. I think there are a lot of us who are in established relationships who have lots of outside in sex where it's sort of like, okay, I feel like I should, it's been a while. Um, you know, it's, it's my duty. It's my responsibility. It's what's what we should do versus inside out is again, like, what is the erotic? What is the sort of erotic um, environment that the two of us really cherish and how do the two of us um, meet in a space of connection um, and what, what is it we're each looking for when we come together 
um, for sexual connection? What, what, what function does it serve? And, and uh, how does that change over time? I'm curious, just as a little follow-up to that, you did mention uh, people who are already in established relationships. How would you go about sort of bringing up that conversation? So somebody who's coming to your book, maybe as one of the two partners, um, would you recommend it be something that they work on together? Or sort of how would you how would you bring this idea into your already established relationship? Yeah. So we thought a lot about this when we were working on the book. I had a um, team of graduate students, um, an, an undergraduate student working with me on the book. And so that, you know, we, we really located, we imagined our reader um, to be a vulva-bodied person, a woman, someone who's been socialized in the feminine because sex and gender role socialization are so bound up in each other. We, there's no way we could have done justice. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no way I felt like I could do justice to um, this topic writing for um, people of all Gender. So we really did, this really is a book for, uh, we're imagining our reader as a woman and whether she's partnered with, um, you know, somebody who shares that gender or uh, a man or a penis bodied person or someone who's been socialized in the masculine, we really thought, okay, so if she is coming into her own understanding of her sexuality, but her partner isn't, or her partner has gotten used to kind of one way of connecting with her, mm-hmm. it's going to shake the system a little bit, right? You make change yeah. in one part of a system, you're going to shake the system. So I love, I mean, we've definitely had a lot of men read the book and I love that. I mean, I think if for no other reason, it's beautiful for men to understand all of the complexities and nuance and challenge of what it means to be a sexual woman in this world. So I love that idea of male allyship and mm-hmm. male um, support. We can't just like, it's vital to have white folks understanding racism because mm-hmm. you know, people of color cannot heal racism on their own. Um, women cannot heal sexism on their own. Women cannot heal sexual shaming on their own. We need partnership from men, from um and so uh, I definitely couples reading the book together makes a lot of sense. But just in case that was not feasible, we wrote an entire chapter called, um, you know, if you basically like if you love someone who is in the process of taking their sexy back, mm-hmm. here's a chapter for you. And basically, like you can look at all the ways in which our culture sold you a bill of goods around sex. Right? Men are loaded up with a bunch of problematic messages about sex. You should want it all the time. Your entire sense of worth rests on whether or not you are, you know, having sex with a woman, you ought to be kind of figuring out like, what's the leading edge? Like, when do we get to do this? Um, you ought not ask questions. You ought to be a leader in the bedroom, like all these problematic messages that are just massively, uh, they just get in the way, get in the way mm-hmm. of connection and, and pleasure and like relaxation in the bedroom. So, um, so that chapter is in there. It's sort of like, if you're, if the person you love is reading this book and she hands you the book, you know, certainly read the whole thing. If you're not gonna read the whole thing, read this chapter and it will give you some tools that you can um, use to, to, to heal together. Right. Cause that's oftentimes what happens is it's in the context of intimate partnership that we really begin to heal together and we get to heal together and um, get to kind of keep discovering who we are sexually in the context of partnership. I love that you said we get to heal together versus we have to. I I appreciate that. Um, I want to back up a little bit and talk about the idea of the map of sexual self-awareness that you bring up. And it really seems to organize all the ideas of this. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the map of sexual self-awareness is something that I developed when I was teaching in, in my teaching of the marriage 101 class for college students. So We've always, the, the marriage 101 class is like, we're about to start teaching the class for the 21st time. The class has been around since, um, two, yeah, since 2001, I guess. Oh my gosh. Um, and it used to be a, anyways, you don't need the whole backstory. <laughs> Basically <laughs> I have spent a lot of years developing how we talk about sex, right? Cause I, in my, you know, in this lecture hall of a hundred students, I have some students who have never, ever held somebody's hand, have never had, you know, have not had any sort of sexual experience, had no sex education or an incredibly conservative abstinence only sex education. And they might be sitting right next to somebody who is deeply immersed in the poly kink, you know, community at Northwestern's campus and is like robustly sexually self-aware. So I've had to figure out how to talk about sex to a room full of folks who are at all different points along the way. And so 
I just have, have developed this idea of talking about sex through these lenses, right? That sex is not just a behavior or a set of behaviors, right? It is a gateway into some of the most essential and interesting and curious questions that we have as human beings, right? Like, am I okay? Am I normal? Do you value me? Do you see me? Do you get me? Uh, you know, what's it like to be alive? What, what is my body? What's possible for my body? Um, and so the map of sexual self-awareness is how the Taking Sexy Back book got organized. So we spend a chapter talking about the impact of gender role socialization and how, you know, messed up it is the things that we tell girls they should want or shouldn't want. We spend a whole chapter talking about body and how our relationship with our body travels with us into the bedroom and can really get in the way of sexual pleasure. If we are kind of um, what sex therapists call spectatoring, you know, sort of watching ourselves have sex while we're having sex that really compromises um, pleasure and mindfulness. We spend a whole chapter on the relational aspect of sex, how we talk about sex with a partner, how we navigate the inevitability of desire discrepancies. So the map has these sort of seven locations that we travel through um, in the book, kind of looking at the topic of sex through all these different lenses. And by the way, when we say sex, it's not, you know, I think we, we falsely in our culture tend to define sex as penetrative sex, right? Mm -hmm. Penis in vagina sex. And that definition is obviously incredibly limited. It renders invisible the experiences of queer people and it holds up one sexual behavior as like the end all be all somehow that's more sex than any other behavior we might be enjoying together. So when we talk about sex in the book and in this conversation, I think about sex as just sort of like a large menu of different experiences of, of, of touch, but that's that map. The map is we just, we stand in different spots. There's different healing. You know, it was really cool to write the book as part of a team because we, we, we would be working on one chapter and for some members of the team, like that chapter was really essential for them. Like they learned a lot, they healed a lot. Um, or for somebody else, it was like, no, that one didn't really, I don't, didn't really have any challenges in that area, but this chapter was really activating for me. And so I think that's, I like that part of the book is that mm -hmm. um, there's an opportunity to kind of gather up different lessons from different, different chapters. I think that's really important to make the distinction between what we're defining as sex, because even myself hearing it, that's the first thing my mind goes to. And um, to remember that the experience can be many different things and it can still be sex or a sexual experience really helps um, broaden the spectrum in how you're thinking about it. So I do appreciate the distinction, especially as I go into asking you about hookup sex and casual self-aware sex. So obviously in the media, we're exposed to a lot of um, casual sex or hookup sex via movies or shows and things like that. And they have a certain connotation. What's the difference between hookup sex and then that casual self-aware sex? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I spend a lot of time, especially with my college students and emerging adults in my clinical work, um, sort of sitting alongside them, helping them attempt to make sense of the modern dating landscape and hookup culture. And there is, um, you know, I think it's one of the, one of the things sort of captures this, um, the modern, I mean, certainly in the modern dating landscape, we have kind of unhooked sex and commitment in ways that, you know, historically, sex was at least supposed to be in the domain of marriage. I think for generations, people have been having sex before and outside of marriage, but certainly it is far, far, far more normalized now than it was, you know, 30 years ago. And in fact, with the sort of movement towards like sex positivity, I think young people can often feel this sense that they should be wanting to have sex with anybody in any context and to not be kind of wide open, available and casual about sex indicates that they are, there's something wrong with them. So it's like this, like the pendulum has swung the other way, right? It's kind of the opposite of what we, what we would call slut shaming, right? Which is sort of shaming somebody for 
wanting sex, we now do the other thing, which is sort of shaming people for not being able to just like get wasted and have sex right away. Um, and so, and so I really want people to have that inside out experience of how would I know if I wanted, how would I discern whether and when sex outside of um, a relationship makes sense for me. So hookup sex is sort of that like low accountability, low conversation, perhaps lots and lots of alcohol, like where it's just kind of mindless, checked out. The research shows that hookup sex is not particularly orgasm promoting mm -hmm. sex, especially for women. The chances that a woman is going to have an orgasm in a hookup experience is like in the single digits, which makes so much sense because mm -hmm. A, she might be drunk and B, she is pretty unlikely to be um, able to communicate to a partner what would feel good. And she might be with a partner who's not asking her what would feel good or who's making lots of assumptions of what would feel good. So that, that kind of sex tends to be, first, it's also high risk, right? Consent. Um, there can be challenges or omissions around consent um, versus casual self-aware sex, which involves conversation before about where our sexual boundaries are, what we're interested in, how we will communicate consents, consent and enthusiasm in an ongoing way. And also casual self-aware sex would involve aftercare, checking in afterwards with each other, right? I think that's one of the more painful parts that I oftentimes hear from my college students is that after a hookup, there can be these awkward moments of seeing them on campus and not even making eye contact or not even having conversation. And that all of that requires a lot of self-abandonment and a lot of trying to be someone that you think you should be um, versus folks who are able to enjoy or um, curious to enjoy casual self-aware sex, it just rests on a foundation of mutuality, conversation, you know, pre-exploration um, pre of sexual boundaries, and then after like caring for each other afterwards, human to human, you know? So that's the distinction that we work on making. That's such a good distinction. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. And I'm not surprised to hear the research that women are less likely to orgasm in those in encounters. Um, in the in your explanation, you mentioned being sex positive and how that's sort of a movement. Can you talk about what it means to be sex positive and how people can be maybe more aware and become more sex positive and do that work toward that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sex positive is a term. I don't know. It's, it's, maybe I would guess it's more than five, less than 10 years old. And it's a, it's a pushback against the default setting in our culture, which has been sex negativity, right? The vast majority of sex education is infused with the energy of fear and shame. And certainly I am all in favor of sex education that honors some of the public health risks of sex, right? That there's, that we need to be making sure that people understand how to prevent unintended pregnancy when that's a possibility, how to prevent STIs, um, how to ensure that there, that, that sex is deeply and profoundly consensual. Like I'm here for all of that, but I think there's ways we can um, provide education that is infused um, with positivity, which just basically starts with the notion that we all get to be sexual, that that is something that there's something so joyful about sexuality. There's something so pleasure. It's, it's a, it's a profound experience of pleasure, hopefully, like it's a celebration of what it is to live in a body. Um, and that, and that our, so sex positivity is really about kind of a celebration of sexuality um, rather than, you know, kind of shrouding the shrouding in fear and shame and um, tenseness, being very tense, talking about it. Um, and so I think for, you know, there are, it's really cool to see and meet young people who have been raised in homes that skew towards sex positivity, where they're, where people's parents use, you know, vulva and penis rather than sissy and weenie and all, you know, like we're just sort of like they, we, little people learned what their bodies were and 
little people weren't shamed for knowing that touching certain parts of the body felt different, you know, families where, um, at family gatherings, kids are given the message, like you can give grandpa a hug, but you also could give him a high five or a fist bump or a wave. Like there's all these little subtle ways that parents can teach their kids about consent, you know, long before they're talking about sex. Like consent is really about, I get to choose when my body is touched. Like that's really the heart of it. So that can start when people are really little and making choices about who gets to touch them and how do people get to touch them and who do they get to touch and, you know, under like, and how might, you know, that somebody wants to be touched and how do you read feedback? So all of that is sex positivity, um, in my mind. Okay. So talking about the, the spectrum where on one end you could fall, you know, sexual rigidity and then sexual chaos. Can you just explain a little bit what that spectrum is and then what it looks like? you know, from start to finish. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of the, one of the most impactful things that I learned years ago was from Dr. Dan Siegel. And, you know, he talks about, um, how at one point in time he sat down with our DSM, right. The diagnostic statistical manual, and he opened it up to any random page. And he began to realize that, that any, quote unquote disorder is either a disorder of chaos or a disorder of rigidity, right? That that's that that we think about um, anorexia, right? Sort of a tightening up of rules around food, restriction, control, limitation. So um, anorexia would be a disorder of rigidity. And then we think about something like um, bulimia to sort of stay in this, in this chapter of the DSM, bulimia is a disorder of chaos, right? There's lots of um, kind of like binging in a sense of being out of control and excess rather than restriction. So he went through the book and basically was like, oh my gosh, every single mental health challenge we face is either we've become too rigid or we've become too chaotic. And that there's a, a juicy middle range, which is the zone of integration, right? Where we are, where we have a sense of, um, boundary and parameter. Um, but we also have a sense of ease and flow, um, sort of a Goldilocks situation <laughs> of not too rigid, not too cat. So in the, in taking sexy back, we sort of play with that idea around our sexuality and that that's, and that some of us, um, you know, some of us have, have existed in a place of a lot of rigidity around sex and a lot of fear and a lot of, um, limitation and silence. And some of us have, um, been in a place of, of chaos of not particularly, of not being particularly careful or thoughtful about the situations we're putting ourselves in or situations we're putting other people in where sex has sort of been this place of like mindlessness, um, and that our healing is to understand how to feel grounded, like grounded and present um, within ourselves and connected to a partner. And like, that's the sort of sexual sweet spot that I want us to feel our way into a feeling mindful and present within ourselves and connected to our partner. Definitely. And you, you just uh, mentioned mindfulness. Um, I want to talk a little bit about why practicing mindfulness during sex is important and, you know, what that might look like. I feel like mindfulness can be this sort of like big idea, but what does it look like in practice when you're being mindful during sex? So the, um, Dr. Lori Brado wrote the foreword to taking sexy back and she is a phenomenal, um, sexuality researcher up in British Columbia. And she was troubled by the research that shows that that nearly half of women struggle with sexual desire. They they are sort of diagnosable as having low sexual desire. At some point in, in time, it's a, it's really common for us as women to experience low desire. And so she was looking at all of what might be possible um, to help women be able to experience more desire and more pleasure during sex. And one of the big barriers she found is that we as women are at risk of getting lost in our thoughts, lost in our minds, um, whether that is um, sort of dis distraction um, or body image critique um, or becoming hyper aware of what our partner is there isn't experiencing is or isn't thinking about us about themselves um, like sort of this this like chatter that takes our attention 
everywhere, but the moment. And so she wondered what, what might happen if we taught mindfulness skills to women, um, and, and sort of talk, taught them how to bring those skills into the bedroom. And so mindfulness, as we know, is a practice of noticing our thoughts without judgment. And it turned out that as women were able to begin to notice where their minds went during sex, they could then bring their attention back to the moment. And in a, in a sexual moment, hopefully there's all kinds of wonderful five sensory experiences we can bring ourselves back to, right? Which is often what we do with mindfulness practices is focus on what do we see? What do we hear? What do we taste? What do we touch? What do we smell? Um, so bringing, so, so those are all skills we can bring into the bedroom, right? When we notice our mind going towards what does my stomach look like right now, or am I making a sound that my partner's going to think is weird, noticing that's a thought and then coming back to the sensation, how my partner's skin smells, how these sheets feel against my skin, the amazing music we're listening to, like that there's so much in the sort of right here, right now, five sensory realm that can help us feel grounded and then present to the sensations in our body. And she found that in her research, this, this training program helped women experience not just more desire, but more arousal, more orgasms, more satisfaction. Um, so it was pretty, it was a bit, it packed a punch, if you will, this <laughs> intervention packed a punch. And that is uh, even around just the idea of orgasm. I mean, in some ways, so, so we talked about hookup sex being mm -hmm. not particularly orgasm producing for women, but even in partnered sex, um, there's a, a persistent orgasm gap, especially for heterosexual women, um, where, uh, in a heterosexual sexual encounter, a man is 95% likely to have an orgasm and a woman is at best 65% likely to, and, um, it's not about, you know, uh, it's, it's about how that sexual script that elevates penetration above everything else, um, it is not her most, it's not, it's not her best and most reliable route to orgasm. And so for as much as I'm celebratory of mindfulness, I, sometimes, sometimes people need more than just mindfulness mm -hmm. to have an orgasm. They also need the kinds of sex, the kinds of behaviors, the kinds of touch that feel really, really, really good to them. So mm -hmm. it's mindfulness plus communication. You can't, you can't mindfulness your way to an orgasm. If the <laughs> behaviors you and your partner are doing are not particularly, you know, feeling good. Yeah. Sure. That's your next book. Mindfulness, your way to orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> you need more than just a exactly. little. <laughs> I, I want to go back and talk about, um, because as we're talking about mindfulness and communication in the bedroom, um, we also talked about kind of establishing the relationship with ourselves, with intimacy and sexuality from a young age. Um, can you talk about how as we're younger and, and those introductions, how they kind of shape our relationship with sexual and intimacy as adults, those early experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, our, our, our early experiences obviously have just about everything shape who we become and they become the, they create the foundation then for what we expect, what we feel like we can ask for. And unfortunately, because lots and lots of us were raised by people who, who had not, who weren't themselves particularly sexually healed. Right. Like I think some, it just travels right down the tree. Our mom, you know, tells us that our vulva is dirty because her mom told her that. So it just gets passed right down the line. Right. If, if our moms didn't have um, their own, like their own kind of sexual healing and sexual reclamation, they just passed on to us the stuff that had been passed on to them, right? A bunch of fears, a bunch of judgments, a bunch of misinformation, a bunch of notions of what girls should do and what good girls don't do. Um, and so all those experiences become the template. And for some of us, for one in three women, those early sexual experiences are traumatic ones, right? So it's not just a mama who says, don't touch your vulva, it's dirty. It is actual abuse that is suffered either early, you know, in childhood or early sexual, um, early experiences, um, that are, that are violent, that are non-consensual, that then become the template and take us out of, out of 
connection with our own bodies and our own sexuality. And certainly our sexualities are bigger, deeper, wider um, than any given trauma, but trauma cuts us off from our ability to feel deeply connected to our body and our sexual self. And that's that's why when New Harbinger and Dr. Holly Richmond partnered together for her book, Reclaiming Pleasure, when she asked me to write the forward, I was like, hell yes, because mm-hmm. that, I mean, that book is just an essential, essential read in addition to, or instead of taking sexy back, because she has done a beautiful job of using somatic tools, helping trauma survivors have access to somatic tools for reestablishing connection for those who had an early experience of trauma that took them out of connection to body, you know, to pleasure, to, to sensation. I just want a quick, funny story. Um, Not funny, but related to what you talked about earlier with how your family teaches you to talk about your body parts. And one of my best friends, she had this video of her four-year-old and he's like riding around on this thing and he falls and he goes, ow, my penis. And it went viral. But what was astonishing was the comments of every person saying, thank you for teaching him the right word. And I was just like shocked by that because it just seems, you know, like common, right? But then you don't realize how many people aren't using the actual anatomy, the terminology, and then that just leads to further misinformation of what you're learning when you're growing up. So I just thought that was really interesting. And that reminded me of that. So sweet. That's really sweet. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing that parents get scared that if we talk about sex as a normal, beautiful part of life, if we validate that's a penis, this is a vulva. It feels really good to touch that part of your body. Doesn't it? But just maybe like not at the dinner table, (laughs) we we get worried that if we give kids those messages that they will, that they will start having sex really early or they will, I don't know, put themselves in harm. Like, I think it's, it's fear. It's a fear that if we talk about it, if we normalize it, then they're going to want it. Well, here's the deal. The data does not show that in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. In fact, teens who receive abstinence only sex education start having sex younger than teens who have comprehensive sex education, right? So we like sell, we sell young people short, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot. Like when, when kids have the information that they need and they feel grounded and they understand it, it's not taboo and split off. And what we find is that lots of folks who have abstinence only sex education, they put themselves in really risky situations where they don't have protection available because in order to have protection available, you have to walk into the drugstore and buy supplies Mm -hmm. or ask your parents to help you. And so they are far more likely to have, not just have sex at a younger age, but also um, have become unintentionally pregnant at a younger age because they, because the whole topic is verboten and shameful and there's silence. And then that's what puts kids at risk. So it is like, we've got it all backwards when it comes to, if our goal is to protect kids, the best way to do that is through education. Not to mention, not to mention what abstinence only and inadequate sex education does is it teaches all of our queer kids that somehow their sexuality is bad, wrong, different, you know, so that's, I mean, it's, it's, again, we're in the single digits when we talk about the number of adolescents who have received sex education that includes representation of queer sexualities. And that is heartbreaking, right? To go through sex education and not have, not have your body, your identity, your sexuality represented in any way, shape or form that which isn't spoken gets loaded up with shame. And that's not fair. Definitely. And I was just going to say, Alexander, when I was in school, I obviously had a very um, straightforward sex education, as many kids in America do. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable. There are textbooks. Uh, nothing is really explained. Um, they split the group, boys yeah, and girls. Yeah, they split the group. Um, it's it's kind of shameful. Um, people laugh, things like that. Um, and w- when I went to college, um, we had a really robust sex week with seminars and sex therapists. And, uh, you know, you could attend all these different lectures and and almost demonstrations and things that really just opened the conversation up about sex. And I kind of wondered as a freshman in college, like, why wasn't this, 
you know, obviously at a collegiate level, there's going to be a different conversation, but the openness around it and um, every, no one's laughing, you know, everyone's sitting there and genuinely trying to learn how to have safe sex and have conversations with people. And, you know, they had, they had shirts made that said consent is sexy. And it was just a really um, refreshing take on having a conversation about sex, especially as a younger person. So it's right in line with that. Yeah. Well, I love it. And I think often, you know, it, it, when people go to college, they oftentimes will have a sort of sexual assault prevention training, you know, even as part of of orientation. And again, that is essential. I am here for really thoughtful sexual assault prevention training, but it, again, we need to go beyond that. Right. Okay. So, so now you just taught me the whole list of don'ts, but what do I do? Like, let's talk about, right. Sexual expression, sexual communication, sexual play. Let's talk about all of the possibilities of, of where we can go when we move beyond the don'ts and we start to talk about the do. So I'm so glad that your school offered it and that you were able to, you know, that you took advantage of that. And I think it's certainly, um, yeah, it's, it is, it's really essential. I remember years ago, I was giving a talk and, um, with, to a group of adults and we were talking about sex and afterwards, one of the women approached me and she said, when our son headed off to college, um, my husband gave him a copy of Ian Kerner's book. She comes first. And my husband said to our son, listen, you're heading off to college. You are probably going to hook up. You're going to be fine, but you need to make sure that, that whoever you're hooking up with also has a really, really good time. And I was like, okay, I need to meet your husband and shake his hand yes. and thank him because we can, parents can. And I think I do think that today's generation of parents, I hear lots and lots of stories that are really heartening about parents making sure that their daughters understand pleasure and parents making sure their sons who are straight understand how, you know, understand female pleasure. And Cassie, your point about like splitting up the boys and the girls for sex ed is ridiculous because oftentimes Mm -hmm. what that means is that the boys don't get education about periods, right? Right. So then periods become this thing that is like weird and strange and at worst gross. And, you know, but it's, we all need to understand girls need to understand things about erections and semen and boys need to understand things about periods and, you know, and all of the, everything in between. Yeah, exactly. And it seems like, um, just to go back a little bit, it seems like the first step is really um, establishing intimacy with yourself is is vital. Um, can you talk about why that's important and ways you might start that, that relationship with yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, I do, let's see. I think that um, under understanding, well, I think the, the heart of it is self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of us struggle with self-compassion around sex. We have lots of um, fears that we're not enough this, or we're too much this, or that what we're interested in is weird, or what we're turned on by is the wrong thing. And so self-compassion is, an, is has to be the energy that infuses all of this exploration, which is just like noticing, noticing, being curious about resisting the urge to judge ourselves um, and an an enduring commitment to being on our own team. Because then when we go into a sexual experience with somebody else, we come into it with a sense of worthiness that, that we deserve to feel good in this experience with somebody else, that, that it's not just like, oh my gosh, my, and I think this especially, especially, especially um, women who have sex with men are at risk of getting hyper-focused on what does he want? Um, And so that, that intimacy with self, that self-compassion then allows, especially a woman to go into a sexual experience with a male partner, really being clear that like, listen, this, this just, it has to feel really good for both of us. This is not a performance. This is not for you. This is for us. And a sense of long before she's gotten to the bedroom of the degree to which this is somebody who can do that with her, right? Mm-hmm. Um, picking up all the little cues along the way about, is this somebody who really can and wants to co-create an experience with me? Um that that starts long before and it starts with all the ways in which the two of you are relating to each other. Um, so that then it just, then 
sexuality, the, the sexual aspect just becomes an extension of all the ways in which you already have felt cared for, heard, respected, honored, um, curious about your partner, feeling like they're curious about you. And that that's really what great sex rests upon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I wanted to kind of go back and talk about um, exploring that relationship in ourselves because we've talked about how women in such low numbers are finding satisfaction, generally speaking, in the bedroom. And by establishing, you know, this relationship or intimacy with ourselves kind of helps us figure out what we like, what we don't like, um, and and helps us grow to be more self-aware in the bedroom. Um, But in your book, you talk about your relationship with your erotic imagination and kind of how that helps shape that. Can you talk about your erotic imagination and what that might do for your sexual self-awareness journey? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we, um, I think that we, there's, there's a, one of the other ways in which we oftentimes internalize shame about sex is we internalize lots of shame about masturbation and you know, that, that, that's something that we shouldn't do, or it's dirty or it's desperate. Um, and for both, you know, whether you're a penis body person or a vulva body person, understanding your own body is really important, right? We're not, we, um, and so, um, so that's oftentimes an important part of sexual self-awareness, especially, I think, I think, especially vulva body people are particularly at risk of not having masturbated or feeling ashamed about masturbation or feeling somehow like how they might masturbate, um, is really separate from how they might be sexual with somebody else, you know? So I think like oftentimes women know, they know how to bring themselves to orgasm. In fact, the research shows that a woman masturbating, it takes, it takes about as long for a woman to bring herself to orgasm through masturbation as it takes a man to bring himself to orgasm through masturbation. So lots and lots of women know how to get themselves off, but somehow there's like this divide between like what I know to be true about myself and what I'm able to ask for, express, co-create with a partner, like like those things don't (laughs) nary the two shall meet. And I think it's because we, you know, as women, we are so socialized to be people pleasers, to not be too greedy and, and, you know, sexuality is, is there's a greediness to it. There is an unapologetic, like, I want to feel good that can feel like it's really confronting or at odds with how we've been socialized. And we're, or we're afraid um, with a partner to seem, you know, too eager or too into it or all this kind of stuff that may keep us from sharing erotic truths that we actually do understand a lot more about our bodies and what feels good and what we might want. Um, And I love, I love when in relationships, people are deeply curious about making each other feel good. Um, And so part of that, like getting to know yourself is being curious about your erotic imagination. Like where do we, where, you know, erotic imagination or fantasies, they're just sexually charged thoughts. That's all they are. And noticing noticing where our imagination goes, what kinds of thoughts, what kinds of storylines, what kinds of scenarios turn us on. It's, um, it's just a place of curiosity and deepening our understanding of ourselves. And some sexual fantasies are ones that we may want to share with a partner and create together. And um, other sexual fantasies just kind of stay in our own minds. They're sort of our own little, I don't know, secret garden or private space that we um, that we get to go. Um, but that, so, so it is, it is just a matter of, um, you know, understanding and being curious about our erotic imaginations rather than again, making some sort of dividing line about, uh, I shouldn't have these kinds of thoughts or this is wrong, or this is, and, and some sexual thoughts are ones that we really, we would not do them in real life either because they're impossible or they're troubling in some way, but they are just ones that we can notice that we have without attaching a whole lot of meaning or certainly without attaching shame to. I like that you called it a sexually charged thought and like that kind of demystifies the word fantasy for some reason for me. Um, So when you do want to share sort of these thoughts with a partner, like something you might want to try, that can be really vulnerable. Um, 
And I think in our culture, especially like fantasy might come with some shame behind it, like thinking you're not enough for your partner or whatever. Um, Do you have any tips for sort of overcoming that fear of being misunderstood when you're communicating a fantasy or a sexually charged thought to your partner? Mm hmm. I think you're right. I think a lot of what keeps us, I think there's two things that keep us silent uh, around talking about sex with a partner. The first is we don't really have education for how to do it. It hasn't been modeled for us. And, you know, like in something like pornography, you don't see people communicating about sex. You just see sex happening without in the absence of communication. So one thing I think is like the absence of training or modeling about it, how to talk about sex. But the other thing I think that keeps us quiet is what you're saying, Cassie, which is just like a fear of hurting our partner's feelings, Mm -hmm. a fear that something we communicate um, might in any way, shape or form make our partner feel badly or like they're not enough. Um, And so I think that, you know, in, in taking sexy back, we do, there's, there's some strategies for how to have those conversations. and I think the, the, the way that I want a couple to talk about this is from a place of our sexual relationship gets to be something that we grow and cultivate and refine over time. Like we get to do that. And part of how we get to do that is by being really curious about each other's turn-ons and fantasies so that then a fan, so that then when our partner lets us in on a fantasy, we feel kind of blessed or honored that we get this little window into, into them. Um, and that it's not a threat, um, that actually there's within a couple's relationship, there's three sexualities, there's, you know, mine, yours, and ours. And so, so then in that way, a partner sharing a sexual fantasy, it's just, all it is, is a window into the sexuality of mine that started long before I met you. That is, you know, that, that maybe now in our relationship, I express it in particular ways with you, but we don't, we don't own each other's sexualities. We, and we are, are also not fully responsible for each other's sexualities. Right. So um, I think that can be a fear of if my partner want something that I'm not interested in or available for, then I'm disappointed to them or that I'm limiting them. And I think that's couples, couples all the time are asked to grieve, grieve what's not possible within a relationship or expand a relationship to make something possible. But that's just sort of, that's the work of intimate partnership, right? I will, there's certain things in my life I will never have because I'm married to Todd Solomon and not somebody else. And he's, you know, he's never going to take me camping. Uh, so I can either <laughs> grieve the fact that I did not marry a camper, or I can celebrate the fact that I married somebody who is profoundly reliable, you know, and true to his word and cares for me in all kinds of ways. So that's, we, we're forever making these trade-offs about what we lose and what we gain in a relationship, but something feels especially scary about it when it comes to sex. And like, what if my partner has sexual desire or interest that I'm not available for or open to? Um, so I think sometimes we, we don't have the conversation because we're scared. That's where it's going to go. Sure. And as you brought up porn being, um, sort of, you know, an exposure to people where they're maybe having, um, maybe that's the origin of their fantasies or that's what they're exposed to. And that's kind of shaping, um, what they're interested in or might be wanting to try. Um, what are some of the helpful and unhelpful aspects of porn and how can we be conscious consumers when we're looking at it through that lens? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, going back to what we were saying before about sex education, Um, I certainly was not educated about pornography when I was (laughs) growing up, but that sort of didn't really matter because pornography, like, you know, maybe you knew which person's dad might have a magazine hidden somewhere in the house that maybe you could look at for 23 seconds, but really it was not, you know, I grew up in an era that was radically different around pornography versus today's youth. And so the fact that we do not, you know, the, the vast majority of sex education does not include anything about pornography, how to be a conscious consumer, um, 
is just ridiculous because kids and the research shows that, you know, the average age at which kids see porn is like 12, 13, 14 years old. And we've got celebrities like Billie Eilish just came out, came forward and talked about the impact of her early exposure to porn and how that really was something she had to heal from. It was a, it was a trauma in terms of trauma being defined as too much too soon, an experience you can't integrate, right? There's nobody witnessing with you to make sense of something. And so I think a lot of young folks are, have experiences uh, that are traumatizing to them around what they have seen um, with porn. And so, um, and that's, and that's not, you know, I don't think we can, I'm not necessarily anti-porn. I'm anti-porn as sex ed. I'm troubled by a lot of the ways in which main quote unquote mainstream porn reinforces pretty troubling aspects of um, gender dynamics that it sort of um, shows oftentimes pretty extreme sexual behaviors without the foundation, right? I mean, I have learned a ton from educators who are deeply immersed in kink um, and BDSM and really expansive sexualities. And I love learning from those kinds of teachers because what is the heart of expansive or more extreme sexuality is consent, conversation, going slow, checking in, having safe words. So to be exposed to mainstream porn where you're seeing things that are pretty extreme without those kinds of conversations is really troubling. To be 14 and seeing that is, is traumatizing, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so do's and don'ts really are, I think, about being thoughtful about what you consume. And in Taking Sexy Back, I shared a number of really wonderful resources, um, porno pornography creators who are feminists who ensure that their performers are well-paid, well-cared for. Some of them have um, tra you know, trauma-informed specialists on their set to make sure that everybody is being really thoughtful. Oftentimes, this content is behind a paywall, so that's, I know, problematic. Um, but I think we can be, we can, we need to be thoughtful about what we're consuming. I love, there's a resource called make love, not porn, which is, um, the world's first social sex network that, that is a user generated, um, platform where, where the content is real couples, you know, real, real sex, real couples, real intimacy, um, so I think that's a big part of it is just being discerning about what we, what we choose, um, and, and making sure, I think making sure that it is not sort of an, instead of like a both, and that it is sometimes, sometimes erotic content or solo sex can help couples bridge a desire discrepancy, right? One partner wants to be more frequently sexual than the other. And so sometimes, erotic content and masturbation can sort of fill that gap. Um, but certainly when people are, um, when it's difficult to engage in partner sex because somebody is so accustomed to solo sex and erotic content, I think that's where, you know, something people want to be mindful of and, and maybe reconsider how they're using. Um, you brought up a good point about desire discrepancy. And I wonder if you can expand and talk about what that is and how, um, you know, a couple might address this in their partnership. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We spend quite a bit of time on that in the book. Cause it's just so common. It just, it makes so much sense. Like desire discrepancy just is around, um, a difference in how often, um, people want to have, have sex or yeah, really it's about, it's about how often people want to be going to bed together and the chances that two people are going to want the same sex, the, the same frequency throughout their relationship. It's impossible. It's an impossibility, right? It just, it's going, desire discrepancies are going to happen. And for some couples, it's just kind of occasional and they can sort of shrug their shoulders and say like, I'm here when you're ready. But for other couples, it becomes a pretty entrenched pattern. And that sometimes is because the couple's not talking about it. So things that we aren't talking about tend to take on a life of their own and they become, we're at risk of becoming more polarized. So maybe the difference between us isn't that great, but if I feel like I can't talk to you about it and you feel like you can't talk to me about it, the difference is going, it's going to start adding layers of meaning. And I'm going to slip into what's wrong with me that I don't want more sex or what's wrong with you that you want so much sex or what's wrong with us that we don't want the same things. 
And so when, what I want people to do is just be able to language it, just be able to say like, it's hard. It's hard when I want to connect with you in that way and, and you aren't available. It's hard for me. I start to worry. Maybe you aren't attracted to me anymore. And if I can say even just that much, it gives my partner a chance to say, thank you so much for letting me know. My gosh, it's not at all about you. I love you. I love touching you. I love being touched by you. And you know, the baby had me up <laughs> all night. <laughs> Could we do this instead? Right. Could we take a bath together instead? Could we dance together? Like the, there's how else might we cultivate a sense of closeness? Um, that it's not, it's not to be solved. It's just to be sort of navigated and, and approached as a team, as a couple, nobody's right. Nobody's wrong. It's just, we're just kind of muddling through this together as best we can. Sure. And the major theme here, obviously with ourselves and with a partner's communication, it's so important to be communicating with ourselves and with our partner about our wants and, you know, whether they're shifting. Um, and I kind of wanted to talk about to, to sum our interview up, why open communication in a sexual setting is so important, not only for ourselves, but for all parties involved and a part of our sexually self-aware journey, like we've been talking about how that contributes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm definitely in favor of open communication and thoughtful communication, right? So open communication doesn't mean that we say whatever we want, however we want, you know, and say, well, it's just, I'm just communicating. I'm just communicating, right? It's not like sort of a, a blank, a blank check to say any old thing that we do need to communicate with care and to make sure that we are, um, taking responsibility for our feelings, right? Like when, you know, like the X, Y, Z statement that couples therapists love to talk about when you do X in situation Y, I feel Z, um, or asking for what we do want rather than critiquing what we, you know, aren't getting, right? Um, Dr. Tammy Nelson says, rather than saying, don't go left, say, I love it when you go right, you know, like just sort of celebrating what what's good and asking for more of that. Um, and that that's that sexual self-awareness that we've been talking about um, is the, you know, is what opens the door to open communication. Cause then I can say, here's what I'm wondering about, or here's what I've noticed about myself, or here's something I'm aware, like I'm blushing, even as I start to say it to you, I'm scared, but I love us and I want us to be really connected. And so I'm going to, you know, step into this edge of vulnerability and share something with you. Um, so that, that is, I think that that's, it's, it's, it's understanding ourselves and communicating, um, our insights, our observations, our questions, our concerns in the service of the relationship, right? I'm, I'm sharing this because I love us because I believe in us, because I want us to feel connected and safe together, that that's really, that's really why we communicate is so that we can understand each other um, more deeply and then create experiences together that feel good. I love that. Um, thanks so much, Alexander. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners before we part? No, just that this is just that I, we, we get to be lifelong learners about sex and we, and we really, in fact, have to be because our sexuality is always changing and evolving. Right. I mean, the, the pandemic has impacted our sexualities, <laughs> our different relationship statuses, different chapters in a journey. So we have to kind of keep coming back, back again and again to observing what feels true for us in an ongoing way. And that we have to keep getting to know our sexual selves again and again, because they're always, they're always changing. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Alexander. This was such a great conversation. And I know we learned a lot from sitting down talking with you further than reading your books. So this was wonderful. It was a treat to be with both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Solomon's first book, Loving Bravely, introduces the idea of relational self-awareness, encouraging you to explore your personal history to gain an understanding of your own relational patterns, as well as your strengths and weaknesses in relationships. By doing so, you'll learn what relationships actually require beyond the fairy tale notions of romance. And by maintaining a steady but gentle focus on yourself, you'll build the best possible foundation for making a loving connection. Her latest book, Taking Sexy Back, is a groundbreaking guide to deepening your connection to yourself 
honoring your desires and cultivating authentic, intimate connections. On these pages, you'll discover how to deepen your sexual self-awareness and use that awareness to create experiences that not only pleasure, but elevate, expand, and heal you. You'll learn to understand your boundaries, communicate what feels good, and bring mindfulness and self-compassion to sex. Most importantly, you'll embrace your sexuality as an evolving, essential, and beautiful part of your life. Visit our website at www.newharbinger.com and use coupon code PODCAST25 to receive 25% off your entire order. New Harbinger Publications is an independent, employee-owned publisher of books on psychology, health, spirituality, and personal growth. For nearly 50 years, our evidence-based self-help books and pioneering workbooks have helped readers make positive changes to improve mental health and well-being. Founded by psychologists Matthew McKay and Patrick Fanning, New Harbinger is proud to be an employee-owned company. Our books reflect our core values of integrity, sustainability, compassion, and trust. Written by leaders in the field and recommended by therapists worldwide, New Harbinger books are practical, accessible, and provide real tools for real change. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show. And we hope that you might share it with anyone who might benefit from the content. This podcast is not a substitute for counseling with a licensed provider. Join the New Harbinger Clinicians Club, a free membership club exclusively for mental health professionals. Sign up today and you'll receive a special welcome gift, 35% off all professional books, free client resources, free eBooks throughout the year, access to private sales, a subscription to our Quick Tips for Therapists email program, and more. Visit newharbinger.com slash clinicians dash club for more information.